0: There's a large conversation taking place in the church over let's call it last generation theology, final generation, Um, Herbert Douglas called it the great controversy theme. And there are a lot of different conversation partners in this conversation. Two primary ones are these books, a book by George Knight called End Time Events and The Last Generation. The thrust of that book is a bit of a historical look at where where we got to where we are today, how we got to where we are today, theologically. And then he critiques the last generation concept. And then this other book, God's Character and the Last Generation, uh, published by Pacific Press, they both are. The second book on the screen is written by Mostly all teachers, scholars at Andrews University at the seminary, one of the contributors um, teaches at the university and not the seminary. And the authors in that book critique last generation theology. Um, let me say that again, I believe that all those teachers there have as their great desire and as they said in the very beginning, to help people be ready for Jesus coming. However, some of their criticisms of last generation theology, I think, are unfounded. And so I've written a review of that book. You could go to that Dropbox if you'd like, um, and you could download my review of that book, try to be fair with them. I'm not really going to be talking particularly about that book, but those are some of the conversation partners that are going to be part of our conversation, our study, this afternoon, this morning. And what we are going to study this morning is the book of Revelation in relation to those people that will live to see Jesus come. What does Revelation say about those characteristics, those people? But there is this larger conversation. And so to begin with, let me say that if we think of last generation theology, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly, all right? What do I mean by that? There are different views about this concept. Actually, really, I'm working on an article for the Adventist Theological Society trying to draw sides together and find common ground. Because really, I think there is a lot of common ground, but there are certain expressions that are used or certain ideas that are attributed to people that maybe they don't really hold. And so um, I think that if we looked as to how we can come together, we'll find much more common ground. So that's the good part of this idea that there's going to be a final generation. I probably should ask, you all believe that Jesus is coming, right? Yeah? No, good. It's clear. This is ASI after all. And you also then believe that there will be people that live to see Jesus come. Okay. Now that group of people, I don't care what you say, is going to be unique. So there's common ground there. And we all believe, all, vast majority of Seventh-day Adventists believe Jesus is coming. I would say all Seventh-day Adventists believe Jesus is coming and that there is gonna be people that live to see him come. But what makes that group distinct or different? What will the experience of that people, that group of people be? So the last generation theology, there's a good side of this. Then there's the bad and the ugly side of it. And maybe these are what some of the critics are saying. As a pastor, um, I've talked to other pastors, and several of my other pastor friends tell me when they find out I'm supportive of this concept, they're like, yeah, but people that believe in last-generation theology are so critical and so undermining, and they're so focused on, you know, minutia. Well, that's the ugly part of it. But, you know, um, there are Seventh-day Adventists like that, on all spheres. Uh, I live in Collegedale, Tennessee. There's a lot of Seventh-day Adventists in that area. And if you happen to visit, you know, a restaurant or anything like that and you ask how the Adventists tip, a lot of times you'll get like, oh, yeah, they're, they're not the best. Where really we should be quite generous because God's given us an abundance of things, right? Oh, you're quiet. So let me give you an example of creation generation theology the bad. This is from George Knight's book, End Time Events and the Last Generation. And this was his experience. He, he first of all believed that you had to have a certain preparation to live to see Jesus come. And then he wrote, after eight years of striving, I was up. In other words, he hadn't achieved whatever he thought he should achieve. Beyond that, I haven't even met one sinlessly perfect Adventist. Now, there's a lot in that thought. If you're thinking that the last generation is going to reach a level of absolute sinless perfection, you are deceived. Okay? Um, The only absolute, God is absolutely perfect. God is absolutely intelligent. God is absolutely sinless. We will have a fallen nature until Jesus comes. But that does not mean that that fallen nature will control. And there's a huge difference there, as we'll see as we continue. But Knight was was going through this tremendous struggle personally. In fact, he left the church, he went out into the world, and then he finally came back into it. I would say that's kind of the ugly side of this teaching, where people become critical, they become judgmental, you know, the focus more, um, a friend of mine just wrote me a letter, he used to work at an institution in another continent, and in that institution, you know the standard of living was that you would never use oil. I mean, never mind that you would be a vegan, but that you would never use oil, that was the standard of living. So that's the ugly side of last generation theology, but there's a good side. And the good side is that there's gonna be a group of people that reflect Jesus. And their character is going to be winsome and loving, and they're not gonna be participating in sin because they realize how horrendous sin is. So again, this is all kind of um, an overview. Again, this is from the book God's Character Page 18, um, the authors in that book repeat this frequently through the book, which was one of my major critiques of the book. The authors say that last generation theology advocates perfectionism, which maintains that unions humans can become absolutely sinless. So there's that thought again, that you can become absolutely sinless. Now, I've... Um, I've read a lot of authors that promote this and heard different speakers, and I don't know anybody that says you can become absolutely perfect or sinless. There may be somebody that says that. Uh, I would suggest that a group of scholars writing a scholarly book should be able to quote those people in the book. Um, But to simply say this creates this false tension. You know, if I say, oh, last generation theology teaches you're gonna be absolutely sinless, well, how does that make you feel? That you're going to be absolutely perfect hopeless. and well, hopeless, right? Oh, who's, who's absolutely perfect? I'm certainly not. Uh, none of us are. But that's not the point. Notice what Herbert Douglas says. Pardon me, just as I bring this. Uh, This is Herbert Douglas in his book called Fork in the Road which is a review of the republication of questions on doctrine and the influence that book has had in the church. Uh, Douglas says this, perfection refers to the pattern of those who increasingly reflect the life of Jesus. That's, Douglas would be considered a last generation theology proponent. And what is he saying? He's not describing absolute perfection, he's saying perfection is every day becoming more and more like Jesus. So when you're first converted and you have this small experience, you're absolutely perfect. But then every day you grow and grow into the image of Christ. And I think that's a very fair working definition of Perfection so this is some of the background again a little bit more background for us in the book um, uh, George Knight's book Le- End-time events in the final generation last generation He refers to E.J. Wagner who ministered in the seventh-day Adventist Church involved in the 1888 um, era with Jones and Ellen White he refers Knight referred quotation by Wagner as indicating that this is the heart of last generation theology. So what does Wagner say? Before the end comes, there must be a people on earth in whom all the fullness of God will be manifest, even as it was in Jesus of Nazareth. So this is Wagner's thought, that before Jesus comes, the last generation is going to reflect Christ's character the way Jesus did here when he was on earth. Does that seem controversial to you? Yes or no? That's why you're here, right? Okay, well, let's keep going. Okay, Uh, then Wagner continues. This is from The Present Truth, United Kingdom, uh, 1898. He says, God will demonstrate to the world that what he did with Jesus of Nazareth, he can do with anyone who, who will yield to him. This is... This is last generation theology. This is the kernel of it according to George Knight. And I agree with him. This is the kernel of it. That what God did in Jesus Christ as Jesus lived his life through faith in his father, through faithfulness to his father, God wants to do with humanity. He not only wants to completely save us from the penalty of sin, but he wants to free us from the power of sin and ultimately from the presence of sin. Again, notice Wagner's emphasis, who's doing this? God. So this again is Knight's concept of what last generation theology is, and if we take this as a foundation, as a basis, I think we could make a pretty strong statement that there really is a connection between what Wagner's saying here and the heart of Seventh-day Adventism, which is, God wants to prepare people to live to see Jesus come and bring the sin to an end. Something has to take place. So what are some of the issues? Again, um, just be very clear that some people can become very critical, very focused on Uh, Diet or dress both diet and dress is important. Lifestyle is important, but we're talking in a much broader sense here So what are some of the issues in or what are some of the concerns about last generation theology? At least according to Knight and the authors from Andrews These are some of their concerns that last generation theology teaches that you can overcome sin completely Not that you will be absolutely sinless, but that you will not be choosing to sin when Jesus comes, before Jesus comes. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, right? Anybody read Romans 6? So let's continue, some of the issues. Uh, the last generation, final generation, participates in vindicating God's character. There's a discussion on that. That justification is not simply declarative and that Christ assumed a fallen nature. The, not all of these we're gonna address today because they're not really all touched on in the book of Revelation. But these are, um, or not quite so clearly, some of the main thoughts. Uh, One other thing I need to bring out before we go to the book of Revelation is this. One of the continual critiques of those that espouse Uh, last generation theology or great controversy theme or preparing for Jesus to come. We really need to think of new words to express it, perhaps. Um, So in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all have sinned. That's a past tense. All have sinned. heirs. All have sinned. You would all agree with that, correct? Yes. All have sinned. All of us have sinned. Everybody, so we meet. And all fall short. That's a continuous tense. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then the, the remedy for that is in verse 24, being justified freely or as a gift. So justification is the gift that covers our past, all have sinned, and it covers our present because we fall short of the glory of God. And there never is a point in the human experience where we become so sanctified that we can say, I don't need justification. Is that clear? Let me restate that. You know, if we think for a moment of of justification as this covering, we, we are justified and we're down here and now we're growing in Christ, and I'm becoming more like Jesus, I'm becoming more sanctified, there's never a point where my sanctification goes like this and my justification goes like that. There's never a point where justification, sanctification rises to the point where I do not need justification. We always need to be covered by Christ's character and Christ's righteousness. And that's, sometimes we can subtly think that well now I'm I'm becoming more like Jesus, So I'm becoming less dependent. And this is one of the major critiques. But this was not a critique that you could really make against Wagner. Notice what Wagner says. Um, Again, present truth, United Kingdom, 1894. Some people have the idea that there is a much higher condition for the Christian to occupy than to be justified. That is to say that there is a higher condition for one to occupy than to be clothed within and without with the righteousness of God. That cannot be. So, you know, for Wagner's concept, justification is the highest state we can reach. But justification transforms us as well, and we enter into the sanctification process. So we need to be very clear, clear again. We are always completely, 100% dependent on Christ, on his righteousness, on being covered by him. In fact, the 144,000, the last generation, are going to be so dependent on him that they're really going to stop committing acts of sin because they're going to be fully dependent on his righteousness. And that's a very important force for us to go, go through. So let's go to the book of Revelation. So Revelation uses the word overcome 28, excuse me, the word overcome is used 28 times in the New Testament and 17 of those times it's used in the book of Revelation. So we think of the book of Revelation, it's important for us to get the big scope of the book of Revelation. The large overarching story in the book of Revelation is the great controversy. Uh, In our evangelistic series, we focus on the beast, and we focus on certain aspects of it on the Sabbath, all of which are very true and important. But too frequently, we miss the larger backdrop, which is the controversy over God's character. And that backdrop is interwoven into all parts of the book of Revelation. Um, And so, very important for us. And again, this continual refrain, You know, um, we think of the letters to the seven churches. And what's each promise to to the letter of the seven church? How is it phrased? To him that overcomes. To him that overcomes. So Revelation continually tries to call God's people out of the culture of the day. So in the first century, the call was to pull out of the culture. You know, second century, third century, 21st century, come out of the culture of the day. And it's easy for us, the to peg the beast and Babylon as certain realities, and they are, they are concrete realities. There will be a National Sunday Law, I'm not de- denying any of that. But when we focus solely on that, we miss the larger backdrop, which is that Babylon You know, just infiltrates through everything. Let me give you an unusual example, perhaps. For me, it's unusual. Um, So one of the things about ancient Rome, and clearly Babylon represents modern Rome, but one of the things about ancient Rome, uh, one of the ways that ancient Rome kept its population happy was by two things. Bread and? and circuses bread and circus so what does that mean keep them fed and keep them entertained that's part of Babylon and you know throughout the empire in the ancient Roman Empire you know there was this um, homogenous idea wherever you went you know there was certain things that you could depend upon now I travel a lot for my work and I go to lots of different parts of the world, and it's amazing how similar the malls are in different parts of the world. You know, bread and circuses. What can I get you to buy, and how can I entertain you? And so, revelation calls us out of our culture. It's a very Illustration I was going to use. My wife works in a little store called the Village Market. It's in College Dale near Southern Adventist University, and they they had this little M M&M, and M. You all know what M and Ms are, right? They had this little M M&M and M man. Um, maybe you've seen him. He's plastic. And anyway, little M M&M and M in the store, and you buy M and Ms. I've seen that in like four different countries. You know, I've seen that in India. Different. It's just like amazing. Like here's this this movement around the world symbolized by little M&M man. Okay, now M&M's in Babylon, maybe I'm making a stretch, but the point is that the culture wants to keep us focused on what's here and now. And Revelation says, no, you need to be thinking about what's coming. And so let's turn to Revelation chapter six. Revelation chapter six, And we're gonna look at Revelation 6, verses 14 through chapter seven in verse eight. We won't read all the verses, but here is one of those passages in the book of Revelation that describe the last generation. Revelation 6, um, starting in verse 14, this is the opening of the sixth seal. It really starts in verse 12, but in verse 14, it describes the sky being split like a scroll When it's rolled up, mountains and islands are being removed from their places. Verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great men, pardon me, the commanders, the rich, the strong, the slave, the free, they all hide in the caves of the rocks. What are they hiding from? They cry out, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Clearly, this is an end-time context. This is just about the coming of Jesus. This is the unfolding, unsounding, unfolding rather of the sixth um, seal on the scroll. The mountains are moving. And then he sees in verse one of chapter seven, and I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that they would not blow on the earth or on, any, on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until... We have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And then verses four through eight, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it goes down through and it lists those different tribes. So here we are in an end time context. And our discussion really this morning is, what are some of the characteristics of the last generation? There is going to be a last generation, this, is a picture of the last generation. And so we look through the passage, they're described as 144,000, they're mentioned again in Revelation chapter 14 as 144,000, certain characteristics there. Um, A little bit later on in Revelation chapter seven is another group described as the great multitude. And one of the questions that come up is what's the relationship Between the 144,000 and the great multitude, and um, there's basically two different views, two predominant views in Seventh-day Adventism today. One view is that the 144,000 and the great multitude are two different groups. 144,000 would be the last generation, and the great multitude would be the saved of all ages if you read Stephen Haskell or um, Uriah Smith or a lot of other different scholars they would argue that that's what you see here two different groups Uh,
1: 144,000
0: is the last generation the great multitude is those that are saved from all ages another perspective is that this is the same group looking from two different directions. The last generation before and then after the second coming. In other words, the 144,000 represent that group of people as the church militant, let's say, and then the great multitude represents the church triumphant. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion back and forth in our Sabbath school quarterly, Two quarters back, when we talked about the book of Revelation, um, the author, Dr. Stefanovich, he presented this view in the Sabbath School Quarterly. Then there's lots of different reasons why you could decide either one of those views. My point is, it's not really essential for our conversation because clearly the 144,000 is part of the last generation. Whether the great multitude is, well we could discuss that and maybe debate it. But clearly the 144,000 is the last generation and so what characteristics do they have? In fact, um, Stefanovich says this in the book God's Character. Uh, He says, Revelation seven concerns exclusively the end time saints who will be alive at the time of the second coming. So he thinks the 144,000 and the great multitude are the same group of people if you disagree, that's fine. We all agree that the 144,000 is the group of people that will live to see Jesus come. Any, anybody would agree with that, largely, in our circle of friends. So, what are some of the characteristics? Um, again, it's important for us to realize, again, that salvation is always a result of Christ's death. Let's look here at Revelation chapter seven momentarily. Revelation chapter seven in verse 14. Revelation seven verse 14, the elder speaks to John, who are these that are clothed in white robes? And John says, I don't know, you do. And then in verse 14, the elder says to John, and he said to me, speaking about the great multitude, these are the ones who have come out of the, what? Great tribulation. That's one of the reasons you could make an argument that this is the 144,000 because they come out of the great tribulation. Uh, One of the reasons you could make that argument. And they have washed their robes and made them what? White in the blood of the lamb. So this group of people are clothed in white robes that have been made white in the blood of the lamb. This imagery runs throughout the entire book of Revelation. We think back, for example, to Revelation chapter three. Let's just turn there, briefly. Revelation chapter three to the church of Sardis. In verse four, Jesus says in the church of Sardis, You have those who have not soiled their garments, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So this is not the last generation in Revelation chapter three, this is Sardis. But they are clothed with what? White garments, white raiment. And the white raiment runs throughout the book of Revelation during the seven last plagues. Let's turn there, Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16 in verse 15, this is really an amazing thought. It's in the middle of the pouring out of the seven last plagues, an admonition in the midst of this time, the probation is closed. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Again, this idea of clothing. What's the point of the imagery? They're washing their robes, and they're being made white, where? In the blood of the Lamb. So all people, personal salvation is always a result of Christ's death, not our efforts. Just want to underscore that. Whether whether you think the 144,000 and the great multitude are the same group, they're clothed in white robes, if they're different groups, the clothing throughout the book of Revelation, an important point in the book of Revelation is clothing, but the saints, they always have this white garment which is given to them through Jesus Christ and made white in the blood of the lamb until we get to Revelation 19, which we'll get to momentarily. So um, let's go back to Revelation chapter seven, 144,000, characteristic of the 144,000, the premier characteristic in Revelation chapter 7 is what? Premier characteristic. They're sealed. They're sealed. And so what does this mean? Now, um, it's important for us to be fair with this context biblically, and sometimes we have misrepresented this context. So sealing is always a work of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at a couple of passages. Let's look at Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is always the agent in the sealing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul writes, Ephesians 1, verse 13, In him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, so they heard the message, they believed the message, and then what was the result? They are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, or by the Holy Spirit of promise. So Paul's writing that the sealing is a work of the Holy Spirit, that comes to the believer when they accept truth is that clear Ephesians 1 verse 13 and then in chapter 4 and verse 30 Paul warns us against grieving the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed unto the day of salvation so there is a New Testament aspect of sealing and some individuals will criticize last generation theology and say well but the sealing all Christians have been sealed That's true. There is an aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit to seal a believer that has happened to all Christians through all generations, but that is not what Revelation 7 is talking about. Revelation 7 is talking about the sealing in an end-time context. How do we know that? Because Revelation 7 and the seal is a direct counter-image to the mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast clearly is an end time issue. So the sealing, it's true, Christians have been sealed. Christians need to be sealed, all Christians need to be sealed. But the sealing, particularly in chapter seven, is in an end time context. Um, What does the sealing represent? Here are a number of verses, clearly we're not gonna go through each one of them. Um, Ezekiel nine, important verse, take a picture of the screen, look up the verses later. Ezekiel 9 shows the seal is a sign of protection, and that comes out very strongly in Revelation chapter 7. What do they need to be protected from? Well, the four angels are about to let go of the four winds, and you know, destruction is about to take place, and the end time is about to come. There are things they need to be protected from. So the seal is a sign of protection. It's also a sign of ownership. Uh, Second Timothy, you know, the Lord knows those who he sealed. And the Jewish tradition of wearing phylacteries, those little boxes with the Old Testament text on them that you'd put on your forehead and um, on your arm and your hand and your arm. That was, again, a sign that you belonged to God that your thoughts belong to God, your actions belong to God, you're his. So a sign of ownership. And there's, uh, the seal had certain significance in first century as well. Sometimes a mercenary soldier would put a mark in his hand to show that he was for hire, similar to the mark of the beast. They wouldn't brand themselves in their forehead, but they would put a brand in their hand to show that they were for for hire. Again, a sign of ownership. Uh, It's a sign of harmony with the law of God. This is all brought out in the seal. And the seal clearly is a representation of character. When we get to Revelation chapter 14, we find not only is the seal mentioned in the forehead, but also the name of God and the name of the lamb are in the foreheads of the 144,000. So the sealing in Revelation 7, in an end-time context, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's showing that God is protecting this group of people, that they recognize that God is their owner, that they belong to him, that they've been purchased, they belong to God, that they're coming in harmony with his law, and they want to reflect his character. What a beautiful opportunity I don't know about the rest of you, but I know that my character needs to be more like Jesus. The way I react to people at times, but you said amen so clearly there, Frank, because you know me, right? That I need to be more like Jesus? Um, We're good friends. Uh, but, But this is what's being offered to us. To be transformed and to be like him. And it's way bigger in a particular dietary thing, diet is important, you know, I'm, those are all important issues, but to really reflect the compassion, the love, and the grace of Christ in every interaction is what we're talking about, is becoming like Jesus. That just as Christ lived his life, just what God did in Christ, God wants to do again in an entire generation. And sometimes people push back and they say, yeah, but you know, Enoch and Elijah, they had this character, they were translated. Yeah, could you imagine to be with Enoch and Elijah? They must have been amazing. Imagine an entire generation of people that are like that. That will turn the world upside down. When the gospel so transforms our lives, that the things we bicker about among ourselves just like, you know, brother, sister, let's press together. I Think of Acts of the Apostles, the book, Acts of the Apostles. You know, the one object of the disciples was to be their one contention, if I can use that word, was who can more reflect the character of Jesus? And so the ceiling, this group of people are protected by God from what's about to happen, God gives the four angels power to destroy the earth, and these people are protected. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the seal is, is always seen as a counterimage to the mark of the beast. This is clearly end time. So let's think about this sealing work, sealing process. Ellen White writes, I also saw that many do not realize, and this is part of the burden uh, that many of us that, communicate this truth with others feel is that many of us, ourselves included, do not realize what they must be in order to live in the sight of the Lord without a high priest in the sanctuary through the time of trouble. We don't realize what that's like. Now, here's a caution here, and we'll get to it as we continue our presentation. And the caution is, don't think that during the time of trouble you're like on your own. The Holy Spirit is always with us. Wagner, I think I have a quotation a little bit later, that says, we may live without a mediator during the time of trouble, but we are never without a savior. And Jesus is always our savior. Nevertheless, there's an experience that God wants to give to us for those people that live through the time of trouble. Many do not realize what they must be in order to live in the sight of the Lord. Those who receive the seal of living God and are protected in the time of trouble must reflect the image of Jesus fully. And must reflect it because that's part of the process of receiving the seal is becoming more like him. Again, another quotation in early writings, page 71. Uh, She writes, Oh, how many I saw in the time of trouble without a shelter... They had neglected the needful preparation, and there's the drumbeat. There is a preparation that needs to take place. You're neglecting the preparation. We're comfortable with bread and circuses, and we too frequently say in our hearts, my Lord delays his coming. But he wants to wake us out of that. Not that we should live in a sense of false excitement, or tension, but in the possibilities that are before us. Therefore, they could not receive the refreshing that all must have to fit them to live in the sight of a holy God. It's Early Writings, page 71. Um, Now is the time to prepare, there's the thought again. The seal of God will never be placed upon the forehead of an impure man or woman. And now here's another part of the tension. We look at ourselves and what do we see? Impurity. And so you have two choices when you see that impurity. Three choices. What are those three choices? Well, you see the impurity, you could get discouraged. I can't do this. This is no good. This is ridiculous. God doesn't want this of me. I think that's a false track. The other thing you could say is, Lord, I am impure. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. No, that's a prayer. Mold me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere. And let the rich current of your love flow through my soul. Just that should be our response. Unfortunately, there's another response as we try to bury the impurity and then think that we're better than everybody else. Oh, so look how impure they are. So the first and the last is the bad and the ugly. The good is, yeah, I am a mess. But Jesus Christ came to be my savior. Have you ever read uh, the Laodicean message? Yes? Do you know, if every time you read it, it says the same thing. It never, oops. It never changes, Uh, Laodicean message never changes. You're always the same condition. That's a rhetorical device, the prophetic rhetorical device, to get you to do what? To buy gold, Lord, I need more, I need more, I need more. I can only write briefly upon these points at this time, merely calling your attention to the necessity of preparation, volume five, page 216. Um, Skip some of these. Thoughts again. So the 144,000, they are sealed. Did you want me to put that back up there? Okay, I won't skip them. Those who are distrustful of self, those who are humbling themselves before God and purifying their souls by obeying the truth, these are receiving the heavenly mold and preparing for the seal of God in their forehead. This is the preparation to be distrustful of self. So those individuals, the ugly last generation theology presenters, and I don't have anybody in mind when I say that, but I'm assuming they exist, who think, you know, you're becoming proud when you're going through this experience. They're totally missing the experience. Because the more we realize what we need to be like, the greater humility it's going to bring about in the soul. Greater humility, humbling, afflicting myself. This is day of atonement imagery continually over and again. And this... Uh, again, by volume 5, 216, same section. When the decree goes forth and the stamp is impressed, their character will remain pure and spotless for eternity. Probation has closed. This does not mean their sinful natures are gone. They still have a sinful nature. We're going to have that until translation. But that sinful nature is not going to rule them. No matter what, it's not going to rule them. And again, I think most of the authors that I'm critiquing or dialoguing with here, they would agree with that. They just have some other concerns. So um, let's turn to Revelation chapter 14 quickly. Revelation 14 also describes 144,000. And Revelation 14, um, there's a lot of characteristics here. Verse three, they sing a new song. No one can learn it except the 144,000, a song of their experience. Verse 4, they are not defiled women, they are kept pure. Pardon me, they're virgins. Clearly that means in the setting of the book of Revelation, they have not had spiritual intercourse with Babylon. They're, They're not participating in the adulteries of Babylon. That's the point there they have been purchased from among men, their first fruits. Verse 5, and no lie is found in their mouth. That's a quality of the remnant from the book of Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 13. No lie is found in their mouth. Again, a very important point in the structure of the book of Revelation. Who is the liar? Satan. He's the deceiver. And all those that love lies, they find their place in the in the lake of fire because there's a battle over truth and lie. There's no lie in the mouth and they are blameless or without fault before the throne of God. They're blameless. And so this concept of blameless sometimes creates tension. Um, The Greek word for blameless is amos and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used many different times. Uh, usually it's used to describe an animal that's cultically pure, an animal that could be used for an animal sacrifice. So for example, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 19, Jesus is called the Lamb of God blameless. So that's the image there. So that's the same word here. It doesn't really mean absolutely perfect. That's not the context. But nobody's saying it does. Um, Abraham and Job, for example, in the Old Testament were blameless. The same Greek word in the Greek translation, but they were not absolutely sinless. This is Dr. Stefanovich again in God's Character, page 226. And I would agree with him. Abraham and Job were blameless, but not absolutely sinless. But that's really not the point. The blamelessness of the 144,000 does not refer to an absolute sinless perfection, but it does refer to what? Total commitment to Christ. Well, I agree with that statement. But that total commitment means that I'm letting Christ live within me completely, fully, and that I'm getting to the point where I would rather die than commit sin. And so again, although sometimes we come from different angles, I think there is a point of commonality, and I would pray that as a church we could gather together around the points that are common. Um, So let's go next, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18, and then chapter 15. So the 144,000, they're sealed, and part of the sealing is protection. We describe that. It... To seal at the end of time, an end-time characteristic. It's important that the 144,000 prepare for that. By extension, if you want to be part of the 144,000, what should you be doing? You should be preparing. That's right. You know this is part of the reason why we exist as a church is to help prepare people to live to see Jesus come, and that this controversy comes to an end, and it's way bigger than just you or me. So Revelation 11, um, 15 through 18, describes the seventh sounding of the seventh angel, and there's different views as to when this takes place. Let me share with you my view. Um, My understanding of chapter 11, verse 15, the sounding of the seventh angel is that this is right toward the very end. Why do I think that? Well, notice what it says. Revelation 11:15. the seventh angel sounded. There are loud voices in heaven. This is um, kind of a chorus in heaven. And it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever. So this is a point in the story in Revelation, the great controversy from Revelation's perspective, when God is now reigning. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Verse 16, 24 elders sit on their thrones, they fall on their faces. Verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who were excuse me, who are and who were because you have taken your great power and reigned, a better translation would be, and have begun to reign. Now that raises all sorts of questions for us. God's down on his throne and from the beginning of the book of Revelation, how could we say he's beginning to reign here in the the book of Revelation? Um... Just in brief summary, again, Revelation is the story of the great controversy. And the great controversy began in heaven. And there needs to be a universal closure to the great controversy. Now, ultimately, that doesn't happen until the end of the thousand years, when the wicked as well can see the closure of it. But there's still all these events that are taking place. Here in this part of the book of Revelation, God is initiating his reign. Verse 18, the nations were what? Angry, and what happens? Your wrath has come. So this is a beginning, what we would often call the time of trouble, pouring out of the seven last plagues. And so let's turn to chapter 15, and just by interests of time. Revelation 15 again describes this wrath in verse 1. I saw this, another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished, completed. And then there's this little, another hymn section in the book of Revelation, um, describing God's greatness and his goodness, and then all the way down to verse 8, please and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is indicating the close of intercession. So the 145,000, they're sealed, they're protected from this time of wrath and trouble, but during this time, there's no mediation the entrance into the temple of heaven is closed. No man can enter into the temple until this is finished. This indicates the close of probation, pouring out of the seven last plagues, beginning of the time of trouble. It's an end point for mediation and intercession. What does that mean? Well, it means two things. On one hand, there is no longer any restraint on the wicked. There's no longer any restraint on Satan. He is fully free to do whatever he wants. And in a very literal sense, all hell breaks loose on this earth. He's totally free to bring destruction. So there's no restraint on Satan. So that's one aspect of this no intercessor, no mediator. The other aspect is God's people are sealed. They don't need intercession any longer. They're no longer confessing. That does not mean they're not dependent on Christ's righteousness, is that clear? They are dependent on it. They're continually dependent on him, always. But here's this distinction, no mediation, the wicked have full, Satan has full control of the wicked and the righteous, they're sealed. What are they feeling? phew, I'm so glad I made it. No way, you know, they're self-distrustful, they're anxious, they're weak, they're still reading Revelation 3, it still says the same thing, you know? That's what they're feeling, so, but the last generation, this is what they go through. So let's look here. uh, this is general conference bulletin this is Wagner 1891 we make the same mistake regarding the time after probation is closed we think that because there'll be no mediator then that we will stand in our own strength because we will be without sin and when he says we will be without sin let's at least be generous with him and understand what he's saying we will be without sinning he's not meaning we will not have a sinful nature that's not his point Oops huh we shall need no mediator but we shall need a savior every moment you notice the difference so here's a clear distinction and the wicked have full control Satan has full control of the wicked but and there's no more mediation there's no more intercession because God's people have stopped committing acts of sin they stopped sinning they are without sin in Wagner's setting here context but they always need Jesus as a savior. And this is vitally important for us. Um, And so what does Ellen White say about this group of people? Um, Great controversy, 623. Not even by a thought could our savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. He had kept his father's commandments and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. No sin in him. What does that mean? The nature of sin is a broad conversation that needs to be had more fully in our church, different understanding of it, different understandings of it. But in this context, it's very clear what she means. There's no sin in him. What is she saying? There's nothing, uh, not even by a thought, could he be what? Brought to yield. There's no sin in him. What does she mean? He's not responding. That's very clear. And then she says, quite plainly, this is the condition in which those must be found who will stand in the time of trouble. They've got a media, they have a savior, they're depending on him, but they are no longer responding to sin. They still have a sinful nature. They are still going to feel totally corrupt. In fact, there's a quotation down white right that uh, brings out that as they go through this period of time, it, it actually purifies them, even though they're not sinning. Amazing thought. We were just little children. Um, this is from the book Sin and Salvation. This is George Knight's book, Sin and Salvation. Notice what he says. Perfectly producing the character of Christ means moving away from pharisaic perfectionistic schemes that focused inward on my own self-improvement and toward losing myself in service for others. Oh, I like that. So the those people at the end of time are gonna be not thinking about their perfectionistic lists at all. They're gonna be reflecting the image of Jesus completely. And they're gonna be wanting to serve others. And if we wanna make a critique about um, a lot of the presentation of last generation theology, or maybe we want to make an addition to it, it would be that we need to incorporate how this last generation is going to be so involved in serving the world. Because that's what Jesus' life was like. Right? When you think of the life of Jesus, he's just always ministering to somebody. That's what the last generations going to be like and they're not going to be sinning. these are not antithetical ideas it's not like you can only have one or the other they both need to be married together revelation nineteen <clears throat> and uh, unfortunately we have to go through this relatively quickly revelation nineteen is the very end section again the last image of the uh, those people that will live to see jesus come Turn with me to Revelation 19, 1 through 8. And we're going to look through this quickly because I did get a couple of questions. This section brings out the distinction between Babylon and the bride. Um, If we look in Revelation 19, verses 1 through 8, there's the fourfold chorus of hallelujah, and there are two main reasons to celebrate. Those reasons are... Babylon is being judged. God is initiating his reign. And the marriage has come. So let's zoom in. Let's go to Revelation chapter 19 in verse 7. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for this is the reason for the celebration. This is the cause for the song. Because, for, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has what? Made herself ready. As much as it's true that salvation is never a part or based on our works, the Greek in this passage is very clear And almost could be translated, she made herself ready by herself. Or she made herself ready. There is a cooperative aspect of the church in the plan of salvation. Salvation is 100% dependent on Christ and his righteousness. But he's not going to force it down our throats. That's why all the appeals in the book of Revelation. And then it goes on to say, In verse 8, and it was given to her. What was given to her? What's given to her? Fine linen. That's not what the verse says. Sorry. What is given to her? It was given to her to clothe herself or to be clothed in fine linen. In other words, what's given to her is the opportunity to be clothed with the fine linen, Revelation 19.8. It's a very important point. This is the marriage of the lamb. This is almost well, this is one of the high points in the unfolding story in the book of Revelation. You know, the heavenly council is clear on the great controversy. The unfallen angels are clear on the great controversy. Is God's church clear on the great controversy? There comes a point in the unfolding of the story in the, great, in the book of Revelation that the church says, I'm ready for the marriage. That is the experience of the last generation. They're clothed, they want to be with the bride, they realize they do not want to be on Satan's side, they want to be free from the control of sin, they're choosing to surrender to him. Um, uh, it is only when the church has the will to be faithful to God, this is from the perspective of the book of Revelation, that God is declared to be sovereign. And so This is from the storyline of Revelation, if you will. So, um, we still have much more material, but I did get a couple of um, texts, so I'm going to stop right here and take some of the questions that some of you sent me. Is that okay? You... Have a question, but, yes sir. Um, That's, that's for me. (laughs) It's actually not, so. um, So I wrote a book called Revelations Hymns, and it's in there, okay. Okay, let's see. Couple of questions. I listened to you a talk you gave on Audioverse in which you shared how Job's faithfulness contributed to God's vindication. Could you expound on that? Thank you. Yes, so one of the critiques of last generation theology by the the book God's Character is that um, the last generation contributes to God's vindication. And the argument is Christ fully vindicated God at the cross. I agree with that 100%. Christ fully vindicated God on the cross. At the end of the thousand years, there is another vindication where the wicked and all the universe and everybody says, you know, the throne, Revelation 20, verse 11, a beautiful verse, you know, I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven had fled away. The image in the verse is that the only thing you see is the throne. That's the picture there. That's the power of the the words. So the focus is the throne, and at that point, there's a final vindication. But God's people contribute to the vindication. How did Job do that? Job contributed to God's vindication by being faithful, by not denying God. We see the same thing in the book of Zechariah. And Ellen White's very clear. Um, uh, I have a couple of quotations. I'm going to end with that one, so I'll leave it there. But there's a couple of quotations, Desire of Ages, and many other places in which Ellen White clearly states that the, um, God's people at the end, that God's character is dependent, the vindication of God's character is dependent on the perfection of his people. That was a rough paraphrase. I don't know if you know that norm where that's in Desire of Ages off the top of your head. But What? Page 671, thank you. Desire of Ages 671. So uh, Job participated in that vindication by being faithful to God. Was I talking about Jacob's point at Jacob's time of trouble at that point? I wasn't really making a distinction between Jacob's time of trouble and the time of trouble. Uh, When the questioner wrote that, I was really subsuming it into the larger context of the time of trouble okay I guess that was it question-wise all those other annoying texts were about meetings yes ma'am she's saying your concern is about the final generation feeling very unworthy so let's look at this this is the final generation again this is uh, from the writing spell and white as they review their past their hopes sink now who are these people this is the 144,000 these people are sealed these people are secure for eternity as they review their past their hopes sink well why you're looking in the wrong place don't look at your past we will obviously for in their whole lives they can see little good they are fully conscious of their weakness and unworthiness Satan hopes so destroy their faith that they will yield to his temptations and turn from their allegiance to God. So Satan wants to destroy this faith. So the experience of the 144,000 in the final generation is a battle of faith in Christ's righteousness and in Christ's character and the 144,000, the final generation, are going to be clinging to Christ's righteousness. They're not perfectionistic in the least. They are totally dependent on that, and that has completely transformed them. Continuing, Ellen White says this, if they could have the assurance of pardon, they would not shrink from torture or death. But should they prove unworthy and lose their lives because of their own defects of character, then God's holy name would be reproached. So their concern is not on themselves. And so any, mis- any representation of the 144,000, particularly as it relates to Wagner or Andreasen or um, Douglas or, or Maxwell, any characteristic of the final generation that tries to say these are perfectionistic, is a gross misunderstanding of what they're teaching. This group of people are the weakest of the weak, but they have found strength in the strongest of the strong, and they are clinging to Christ's character. They know that he is their savior, and they do not let go hold of their faith in him. So my prayer for each one of us is that that would be our experience, that you and I would want to be part of that preparation for the final generation. Now some of you have some questions. I'm gonna close with prayer, and then I'll stay if there's some questions after, okay? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the opportunity before us to be like Jesus. What more could you offer us? I pray that his character would be so attractive to us that would be our great desire. Kill the uh, desire for bread and circuses, which is in our heart, that we might fully reflect his love to others. In Jesus' name, amen. One last thing, please, as you're going, there's a form in the back there, if you could fill that out. And also, don't become an ugly last-generation theology person. Be a lovely one. Thank you.